Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we have a, a wonderful guest for you, Paige Poss. And Paige is going to be talking about all things feet. Paige, I was trying to remember when we first met, and I think it was, I know the first time I met you, it was at the Ohio Equine Affair, and it would have been in probably 2002 or 2003, and I had Panda with me, and I remember being fascinated by the feet of the draft horses. And and in particular, there was, they had a big team of Percherons. Uh, it was one of the, um, the, the show teams where they had uh, like an eight horse, 10 horse hitch, something like that. And these, they had these huge Percherons lined up just inside the, the entrance to the barn. And little Panda and I were walking past. And so she has, the, and Panda has, even for Minnie, she has tiny feet. And so there are these tiny, tiny little feet and these huge platters. And the, the contrast I just found so enchanting, really. And then the two of us were visiting, and I've forgotten who, I think it may have been, might even have been Kim Cassidy who introduced us, so maybe not. But in any event, we were we were visiting, and I remember the two of us looking at another pair of draft horses who were wearing the big scotch plates and had the enormous flares, and we were both horrified, really. And then the, uh, the, a saddlebred went by with the very built-up feet, and we were, again, oh dear, this, this just shouldn't be. And the conversation went on from there. And for you, the conversation has been rolling on in terms of the whole exploration and development of Barefoot. And one of the things that I think is so interesting in visiting with you is that you've been at this really since the very early days of the awareness of what became a Barefoot movement instead of just a I want to say just a choice. I'm going to pull my horse's shoes for the winter. So can you talk a little bit about the history, the background of how we got to where we are and some of the changes that you've seen and and along the way introduce yourself a little bit better than than I have. I've just sort of jumped in. So So this is Paige Poss and I started just trimming my own horse's feet and then um found that it really fit my science and art and animal background and and just kind of ran with it. But um, I've started trimming my own horses in 1999 when Barefoot was a novelty. And of course, Barefoot has always been around and people have always trimmed their horses' feet. But this is when it became much more of a movement and natural horsemanship was big and natural hoof care and all of these things. It was it was kind of a more contentious time where you were either 
you know, in the shoe world or in the barefoot world. And, and I'm very, very, very happy to say that that is not the case anymore, that the lines have been blending over the years. As they should. Yes, absolutely. Yes. yes. And yes. although. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's still there. Don't get me A wrong. A little bit. <laughs> well, and, but it's no different than your operant conditioning and the way that you guys oh, everything in the horse world is like that <laughs> there's always yes. all these very strong opinions yes. and there's a point where you have to decide for yourself but um, it, it may not be as antagonistic as it used to be in right. terms of the barefoot versus the shoes well and what in my journey has made it less antagonistic has been like you were talking about the feet that we were looking at at the um, Ohio Equine Affair, the extremes, you had the extreme tall feet with lots and lots of shoe, you had the scotch bottom um, draft horses where they um, increase the flare, and then you have Panda with these tiny little slippers. I mean, she just had the tiniest little feet. Yes. And what drew me to start doing more anatomy and I kind of didn't finish my introduction that I went from just trimming to then I started a website called Iron Free Hoof which was centered around barefoot trimming and all things barefoot and then as time went on I stepped more and more into the anatomy aspect of it because there was on all sides there was a lot of people with very strong opinions and I needed to figure things out on my own and and going back to my science background and and my hands-on learning style i just started taking feet apart to learn the mechanics myself because i have to you know i just didn't i can't hear people who are cramming philosophies down my throat yes <laughs> and i feel like a lot of people are that way and when you say take feet apart, you mean you were doing hoof dissections? I've been doing hoof dissections for a long time. And then I started taking images of the dissections I was taking because I had access to cadaver feet, which a lot of people don't have access to. And in my way of honoring the feet that I got, I tried to photo document what I had and started sharing images because I felt like for those who learn more like I do, the more they could see, the better it was. And, you know, this was just a way to make each foot count. So, and I also then realized how much I could see in images, because when you're actually doing the dissection, you're busy and you're engrossed in something. And then you go back and you look at the hundreds and thousands, of, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of images that I have, and you start seeing more patterns and the comparative anatomy starts jumping out at you. And I started putting more pieces together. So as life went on, I ended up pairing up with um, my now business partner, Jenny Edwards, who had started All Natural Horse Care a long time ago. And she is also a graphic designer. Together, she and I started Anatomy of the Equine. And we laugh. That was an ambitious title, <laughs> Anatomy of the Equine, because we still have not gotten out of the leg. <laughs> We've done a little bit. We did a dental book, but, but we now collaborate together and take, you know, she's been a trimmer as long as I have. So 
we really try to make material that is is very useful for owners it's for professionals and it's really been the catalyst to help me transition from being a religious barefoot fanatic to someone who just understands mechanics more and loves to share so i've and I, I have now, to say both websites, the Iron Free Hoof and the Anatomy of the Equine are very informative. You're very generous. Uh, you give a you. lot of information and I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. Jenny and I are diligently working on an online course with our Anatomy of the Equine stuff. And we're also, we have our our books that we sell that I'm very honored to say are bought around the world and we have more and more vet students and veterinarians and professional farriers and barefoot trimmers and lots of owners who find our books useful at least that's the feedback we get and i've even gone on to be a speaker at the uh, american farriers association national convention i've been a speaker at the hoof care summit and you know been it, it just makes my heart sing to be asked to speak on all platforms yes because I feel like so it's let me ask the question sure is barefoot better <laughs> I have to tell you that Alex and I were starting to chat before we started the recording and she stopped me so we'd cover more of it here my view on that has changed considerably. I feel like a good balance trim that helps keep from having, um, you know, that you get your circulation in the foot and everything else can be obtained whether you have a shoe on or whether the foot is barefoot. I personally like barefoot because that's what I got good at. That's what I am. I'm an artist with the foot. But I have seen amazing work from other people. So at the end of the day, a good trim is what's best. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter what you put on the foot. I find it easier in a foot to um, decrease distortions and get a healthier foot when it's barefoot because I'm not having to pull nails frequently and, and I can get to the foot more easily. I have good feedback from the horse. If I don't do something right, it's like, you know, almost immediately. So you have this immediate feedback loop that I think sometimes you don't get when you have uh, shoes on. What, what kind it, of feedback? Well, managing and taking care of a full book of business of barefoot horses really taught me more about nutrition than anything because you can take a horse that has some say metabolic um, issues i had a fjord just cute as a button morbidly obese needed more exercise i did everything i could to manage how much food she got how healthy her food was but for example i could put her into a stall and give her controlled hay and you know really manage everything and she would walk out of the stall, down the gravel driveway, into the paddock, that, and put a muzzle on her and uh, leave her out for a few hours. 
within a few hours, when I walked her back across the same gravel driveway, she would be foot sore. And that's wow. how I knew the sugars were a real problem with her. So you can get some immediate feedback like that. And then, you know, of course you see some horses who are lame in shoes and you take the shoes off when they're really lame. Well, a lot of times it's because their feet were hurting even before. So there's, there's all kinds of information that you can get. Mm -hmm. I'm reading Isabel Tree's book called Wilding, which is, it's a fascinating and wonderful book on the, it's an estate in Great Britain that used to be farmed intensively and they stopped. They stopped all arable farming and let the land go back to a wild state. And they maintain it in part through introducing grazing animals. So it's the grazers and the pressure from the grazers on the land that allows for the restoration of biodiversity. It's a, it's a fascinating process. But the grazers that they chose were longhorn cattle, Exmoor ponies, and deer. And when they first introduced the Exmoor ponies, they struggled with laminitis. So the spring would come, the Exmoor ponies would become lame. They want their animals to live in as wild a natural state as possible. And here they were having to pull them off the fields and manage these laminitic ponies. And that's the opposite of what they wanted. But as the pasture health was restored, as the biodiversity returned, by the third year, their Exmoor ponies were not coming down with laminitis anymore. They weren't foot sore. So again, it's that nutrition, the health of the soil, the health of our pastures, very much a big part of what you see in the feet as a, as a, a foot care specialist and trimmer. Yeah. I don't find that um, surprising at all. I think no. that's very reasonable to see changes like that because I experienced some of that growing up. My grandfather um, had horses and they, we had Shetland ponies and they only got ridden the one month that, out of every summer that I went to visit. And they were morbidly obese. And the way that he kept them in the pastures that he had, they never got laminitis. They lived to ripe old ages and never were foot sore. If anything, I would have liked them to be a little bit more foot sore because they were really, really <laughs> naughty little ponies. <laughs> a little gravel and slowing them down would have been a wonderful oh, set no. of breaks. <laughs> no. I know, it's terrible, but, isn't it? <laughs> yes, but isn't that fascinating? Because this, this is what those of us who've been around horses for a long time, that we hear... I would say the same thing, that growing up, I never saw a laminitic horse. And, and I grew up, I had my horse on a farm that raised Welsh ponies. And they were, you know, fat little round ponies, but they never had laminitis. And we never saw colic. Yeah. And now it's, it's such a nightmare when you have the, so many horses that you feel as though this can't be right because my horse can't go out and eat grass. My horse is laminitic all the time. My horse has Cushing's. My horse has 
insulin resistance and metabolic um, syndrome and uh, all of these things that seem to be part and parcel of the modern horse. Yeah. Nutrition is important, but you yes. talked about a good balanced trim. What, how do I know as a horse owner that I'm looking at a good trim? What does well, a good foot look like? A lot of times I'll get people who reach out to me through the website or, you know, they'll send me an email, they'll send me, you know, a message on Facebook or something. And they'll, they'll ask if I'll do a consult because they feel like something's wrong with their horse's feet. And it's interesting because I tell people most owners in their gut know what a good trim looks like and what doesn't. If, if it makes you feel uncomfortable to look at it, meaning it looks like the toes are too long, then you know what? I pretty much can guarantee the toes are going to be too long. It doesn't mean that owners know what to do about it, but they often know what's not right. They know super low heels. They know long toes. They know major imbalances. So you need to build your own confidence and see what you see and know that you're seeing it correctly. But it's not always easy to find solutions. And it's not always easy to find solutions with a recipe because just pulling the shoes and even having a barefoot trimmer doesn't guarantee that you're going to have success because there's so many things that need to be in place. And I don't want to make it sound difficult or anything else, but it, it boils down to you kind of need a team. You need to have a professional you can work with, whether it is a barefoot trimmer or whether it's a farrier. Some people do really good work and some people don't. It's just like choosing a doctor. Just because people have been trained doesn't mean they have natural talent. You see that when it comes to training horses too. That would be one of my questions. So we'll take a hypothetical horse sitting in a barn that you've come to see. And this horse has very long toes and everything that I have been learning says that long toes are um, not a good deal, that they put a lot of leverage on that horse's foot and leg. So the question is, if I as an owner understand that having the very long toe, low heel is not, is not in that horse's best interest in all likelihood, why did the trimmer leave the toe long? What are some of the reasons why we see these patterns are there, are there benign reasons for leaving the flares, leaving the toes long, or is it just lack of knowledge? That's, it's so hard to answer those questions. I think sometimes the way people are trained, they've been told this is what you need in a foot. And it comes down to fear, I think, with some people. It's like, this is what I've been told. This is what is right. They don't know how to deviate. But I, I always want to be so fair in how I talk about this, but I feel like some people believe their teachers more than they believe their horses. And you need uh. to know and recognize discomfort in horses, 
foot pain in horses. And when I say discomfort, I mean a horse who's standing badly, his body hurts. He's not balanced. Yes. And when you also understand the anatomy of the foot, you start having confidence of what needs to stay and what can go. And, and everybody talks about that, but some people really can take it in and others can't. I mean, it, it's, I just feel like it's an individual skill, but I've seen situations where how you approach your professional can really have a big, big impact. Sorry about the dogs <laughs> to my husband's home. <laughs> But how you approach the professional can have a big impact on the approach the professional will take. If you're concerned about the long toes, don't tell them that you read on the internet that you need to do this, that, or the other. Yes. The toe needs to come back. You just present it that I just would love to try getting the toe back. It's on me. Do you mind trying something different? And if they really don't want to work with you, then maybe that's not the professional to work with. This is how you start setting up a team. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it also may be to begin with the whole question of, I noticed that you're leaving the flares on the side. Is there, what is the reason for that? Why are why are you why are you setting this foot up the way that you are? But to say it not in the why are you setting this foot up the way you are? But uh, I'm curious. I'm I want to learn. Help me to learn. And because there may be some very benign and educated reason why they are setting the foot up the way that they are, or it may just be that they've done fifteen horses that day and the feet have all blurred into just one generic, this is what I do. Yeah. Sometimes I think when people are exhausted, their muscle memory just kicks in and they just yes. do whatever. But it, for me, I've learned to also stand back and look at the whole horse. And when you see a horse that's standing like a goat on a rock, so his front feet are pulled back a little bit underneath him and the hind feet. So, so they're standing close. They're not standing like a table where the four legs are square and underneath them. That's telling you a lot of times that there is a problem with the way the feet are loading. And believe it or not, when they're standing like that, it often is the toes are long in the front and they'll pull the feet back underneath them. They're finding their own balance. They're having to compensate for the long toes and then they consequently will bring their hind feet closer to the front feet. So they end up standing, you know, like they're on a pedestal. Well, that has very detrimental effects to the whole body. And this, this was first introduced to me with um, Judith Shoemaker. And I had just never really put that together. And she said that when a horse is standing like that, they're not using their stabilizer muscles. They're using mobilizer muscles to yes. stand. And if you think about it, that's like, like standing on a wobble board all the time. You don't get any rest. So little things like that can kind of help you see if you want to encourage 
urge your professional to, to try making some changes and say, can we experiment and see if we can get our, the horse to stand a little square? Can we, you know, this, this collaborative approach is a good place to start. Definitely. Or you see the work that someone else is doing. And if you see what looks to your gut, like it's correct, and the horse is happy, then maybe that's the professional you want to chase down, whoever's doing that work. Yes, that's always a good way of finding somebody. It's, it's looking at what they're doing, and if you like the quality of their work, that's the person that you gravitate to, if you can get them, because often the really good people have very little room left in their schedule for new horses, and that's always a challenge. Yeah, it is. And, and sometimes you wonder, too, because... Um, if you were working with a traditional farrier and and maybe you won't you don't do this kind of differentiation anymore, but for me i've I'm always wondering, can I ask a traditional farrier to transition my horse to barefoot, and how much of a specialty is it to transition a horse to barefoot? I think that it's all over the board. I work with so many farriers now. Think about it. If they're coming to me to learn anatomy and stuff, they're probably people who are seeking out education. So I probably see a different population. And also when I was living in Virginia, I lived in the Middleburg area that was very, very horsey with lots and lots of professionals and lots of good farriers. So their trims were often really good. Mm -hmm. So I think even the, the level of expectation in an area will dictate how good the, the farrier or trimmer is. Mm -hmm. That if you have more money, more education with the owners, more expectation, I find that a lot of people do a good job. And then when you start getting into more remote areas, and of course this is a broad general, generalization, but I do find that the people who have pressure on them tend to be better at getting shoes off and getting a horse pretty comfortable with that. It's just my take on it. And then there are some farriers who really don't work with barefoot horses at all. They're working at such a high level of performance that if a horse is going to go barefoot, they send it to somebody else mm -hmm. to, to have done. So Again, I feel like I, I keep going sideways on your questions, but you can ask your farrier. You can ask them, is this particular horse one you feel like we can try barefoot? Can we pull the back shoes and see how it goes? If you have your farrier say, pull the back shoes and it just looks awful and you're not happy and the horse isn't happy, then I would maybe ask him to pull the front shoes. I might try to find somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I'm very flexible in how I tell people to approach this because we can't burn our bridges. We can't, you know, sometimes people really do have hidden talents. We just never ask them to pull shoes. Right. I learned too that there, because farrier is, um, oh, I don't think it's a protected pr profession, but certified farrier, certainly they have to go through a course where they do learn the anatomy. Um, yes. And I suppose that makes a difference too. I mean, it, well, the more you know about the anatomy, I guess the better um, you are at coming up with solution for the individual you have in front of you. 
you know, I, again, I think it's all over the, the map. I think that um, everybody kind of specializes, but I do find that the barefoot world tends to be bigger anatomy geeks. And okay. which is really interesting, considering that, you know, you're nailing into the foot, you'd think you'd really want to know what was on the inside of that foot. So I I just but I but I think you're right that the real excitement over anatomy and what's going on and really understanding the foot is has has ballooned with the people who are doing the barefoot trims. But it's exploding in the farrier world too and I don't it is. know if it it's... is because you know my farrier who's who is a certified farrier is such a promoter of continued education. See, I think that's the big change that's been going on is there's the organizations are just seem hungrier that the, the people in who are in the organizations who get certification, who come to conferences, those people are just hungry. They, they love to learn. They want to expand what they understand. And I do see a huge change in the amount of anatomy that's being studied and how it's being studied. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps people mechanically put pieces together. Anyway, I just think that that's a, a real strong suit for people to understand what's going on externally is, is you got to know what's going on internally. So the barefoot movement, when did it start exactly as a movement? I mean, for, for sure. I mean, people... The latest have... movement is started probably in 1999, 2000. Okay. when it got started again. So it's, you know, 19, 20 years out and the lines are blurring. You've got a lot right. of people who have been doing it a long time. And, and I, there are many of us who started trending back early in the 2000s who now incorporate a lot more boots, a lot more, I use clogs now, I cast things on, I tape things on. I recommend people put shoes on. For me, it's about getting a horse comfortable. And there's so many nuances to what the owner needs, what the horse needs, the environment you've got, the demands you've got on the horse. I've, I've quit thinking of myself as just a barefoot trimmer and I've decided that I'm more of a resource, that I will take on a new client, a horse with problems, and I'm like, in four months, we're going to reassess this. If the needle is not pointing the direction that I think it needs to be pointing, we might need to find you some other venue to see if we can help this horse. So the sicker horses take a lot more creativity. And sometimes I'm not the person with the tool who's going to make that horse comfortable. So but there are so many elements to consider. You know, right now I'm in the midst of trying to transition two of my horses to barefoot. And we've tried in the past to unshoe these horses and we're not successful. Mm -hmm. But I want to plan better this time. I want yeah. to gather all the winning conditions, but I'm not sure if I'll be successful. But I'd, I'd really like to be able to do this. I don't ride the horses much. So I don't understand, you know, I, I, I keep thinking they should be able to be barefoot, 
Maybe not, we'll see, but this time I'm using boots, which I didn't really do the last time. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeking more counsel because the last time was more like, you know, we'll just take, take the off the shoes. And That's right. And, and I've done this with many other horses that, and we were successful, but these two, we were not. Well, let me tell you that probably the biggest key to success is a healthy horse. And one, there are so many things that you may not realize is going on with your horse and shoes can help them cope and feel better is one of the ongoing things that I was dealing with in Virginia was horses with Lyme disease. Horses mm -hmm. with Lyme often have low levels of laminitis. They can be young, they can be fit, and they can look healthy. But I, when I would be presented with a horse, for example, there was a quarter horse, 10 years old. The people already owned two metabolic Cushing's horses. They were feeding and those horses looked fantastic. So I knew they knew how to feed fragile horses. The horse was in shape. He was 10 years old, everything. The footing was really good. She lived at the coast of Virginia. It was sandy, comfortable. Nobody was complaining except for him. And I was like, this is not adding up. So we got the vet involved and sure enough, he had Lyme disease and he needed treatment. You've got here the heat, I'm out in Arizona now. And believe it or not, if a horse has a little bit of metabolic stuff, the pattern I'm seeing, I don't have any research behind this, but the vets kind of are the ones telling me that when they have low-grade laminitis, when you get to the really, really hot time of year, these horses crash on you in a way that I never saw in the East. Hmm. So it's, there's a lot of times other factors going on. So if they're not healthy, that could be really what the problem is. And it could be early signs of Cushing's. The number one um, symptom that I found as a healthcare provider was low grade laminitis that started, especially in the fall, late summer, early fall. And that was the beauty of having the same horses I worked on for like 15 years. Even if they were 10 years old when I started, by the time I quit working on them and moved, they were 25 years old. So I watched horses get older and start having complications from metabolic syndrome and Cushing's and stuff. That's a really good point because what might have worked 15 years ago and been fine, you know, as that horse ages and changes, there will absolutely be effects on the feet and changes that you may have to make, not just in the nutrition, but also in veterinary care and and you know one of the reasons that I like barefoot is that there isn't a shoe in the way so I can trim I can trim every couple days if I want you know I can stay fairly current with that foot assuming I'm not traveling um, then I get very behind but I, I I like being able to see the day-by-day -day changes in a foot how it's responding to 
uh, right now the change in in footing because we're shifting from fall into winter conditions and and the foot is responding to that i find all of that fascinating and the feet are also changing because the horses are older yeah there's so many reasons that the feet change and it was always amusing to me where you know, I would go in and I'd have a client that I've been working on their horse for years and years. And they'd say, oh my God, you made him sore last time. And it's like, do you think I've really got worse at my job? I've been doing your <laughs> horse for 10 years. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it, it takes experience to help you un- build confidence in yourself and your abilities to go, this is out of my wheelhouse. This is, this is a problem I can help point you in the right direction, but it's not my, I'm not going to be able to fix this. This isn't a trimming problem. And sometimes that can happen with body work and stuff like that. I mean, you can have the best trim in the world, but if the horse has got major body issues, you can't make progress. Dental work has a huge influence on some of the changes that you can make. So it's, I don't, I don't like talking at length like this and making it sound so discouraging. It's not. I tell people, just get started. Try, use your gut and trust your horse. Don't careen from professional to professional. Try to work with who you've got and then move on carefully. Just like you're trying to find a trainer. Maybe you go look at the work that they're doing and you, you, you just find the people who fit your community mm-hmm. is the and best I, way that I can. But we're, we're saying, you know, an uh, unhealthy horse will be difficult uh, to transition, but we also hear that a barefoot horse can, uh, a, a, a barefoot horse can be more healthy because he is barefoot. Yes, as long as it's not seen as a, you're going to make your horse live in pain to get there. And it's like, I feel like a lot of horses who benefit, I feel like benefit the most from being barefoot often are the ones the most miserable getting barefoot. And I've tried to get, gain a lot of skills to make that transition easier. Back in the early 2000s, if you use boots, you were seen as a failure. And, you know, all of these things that were somewhat religious in the, in the teachings, like, you know, you, you had something to prove. I hadn't heard that. Wow. That, so I had not, I hadn't realized that there was that early bias against boots. Of course, of course, 20 years ago, it was, you know, that was sort of the easy boot. Your, the old, the old fashioned one with the metal clamp was kind of the choice and now we have so many more options, but to not make, and, and I've seen that, I've, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because, and there's one horse in particular that I always think of who was living out, this was, I met him at a clinic out West and the pasture was basically bare granite and this horse was so lame. And and the owner was determined that she was going to make the transition into barefoot. And she'd been at it for a year. And this horse had been lame for a year. It's like, how much pain does this horse have to endure for this? And which brings me to another question, because 
she was doing the kind the trim that was this was a long time ago the trim where you carve out the horse's sole and then there have been other trims i think the the trim from the top etc are we starting to sort of coalesce along one path of how to produce a good trim does it matter there are more people doing trims that make horses comfortable there's not as many cult-like followings you know different ways to trim but it sadly it is still out there and and that's what i feel like i kind of started with but i wasn't very clear about is that the people who are very adamant about how to do it the right way scare me more than the people who are like, I don't know, I'm going to try the best I can and let's, let's do plan A and then B and then C. Yes, yes. And I feel like the people who will stretch to work with you and your anxieties and your horse and his pain are the people that I personally trust more. Somebody who's saying, you're watching, I have a client that I picked up here and she's had someone who was an aggressive trimmer come out and work on her horse. Her horse started lying down and we're talking months. Absolutely, the trimmer forbade her to put boots on. This is, this is the last four months that I just picked up this client. You know, and she Why? just was like, oh my God, I don't know. I'm not, I'm just saying though that she finally was like, I couldn't stand it anymore. I put boots on and called you. <laughs> so because I had a more even keel. So again, you have to find the professionals that fit your core beliefs. Well, my belief is that my horse must endure no pain. Am I not realistic? Because I don't want to see them in pain at all. Well, not, not so at all. I, I, get a little scared of that because I see sometimes the highest level of farriers, meaning the ones who work on the highest level of performance horses, your FBI show jumpers and three-day eventers and, and these really top level horses that sometimes I see work that gets so out of whack because they do not, if the foot, if the horse is working, and he comes in, it's time for a shoeing. Sometimes I feel like they're too afraid to do anything, but it just dust the foot off and put the shoe on until the foot gets so out of whack. So you have to be careful. There's a pendulum swinging there. If you're so adamant, this horse is never going to take a lame step because of the process you're doing, you might be creating a professional afraid to do anything. Does that make sense? You can't, you can't always guarantee that a horse won't notice a trim. I had a new horse two days ago and the horse hadn't been trimmed in a year. The toe was really long and the heels had curled completely under. It was, you know, there was so much that needed to be done. And I told her, I said, I am trying my best not to make him sore. But you have to imagine anything I do is going to change the way he stands. 
It's going to change every joint going up his body and it might make his foot sore a little bit. What we're looking for is you're to stay in touch with me if he's a little like slower and a little uncomfortable for a couple of days. That's probably to be expected. But if he's wanting to lay down on the ground, I will be there immediately. So you have to just have, let well, them do their should, job. What should I expect? In, I mean, because uh, this, these horses have been maintained, now we're pulling the shoes. So what should I expect in terms of the transition and how do I make it easier for them? Just <laughs> uh, finding a good professional. Mm. <laughs> Someone who is understands that it's a process mm. again i think of the way that you trim a foot and make improvements is done incrementally mm. and i know you guys know this with the tra um, training you have people sometimes who are so incremental they never make any progress so you have to do incremental changes but you also have to move forward so you can't have somebody who's so passive that leaves everything that's detrimental to the foot on the foot and they're too afraid to take anything off, but you also can't have somebody who comes in and whack everything off in one day. So the, probably the best way to make sure your horses are okay is look around at different professionals. And education goes a long way. And I think that, that statement that you made at the very beginning of that people are because people are becoming more educated, they're losing some of that adamant, it's, it's, it must be this way, and this is the only way, and this is that cult kind of feel to it. And I would say that that's also what we see in the training, in the clicker training, that the more educated people become, the more flexible they become in their thinking, the more they understand the they understand that it's not black and white well don't you think they become better problem solvers absolutely absolutely what i'm seeing in the um healthcare world is that the more that people are seeking knowledge i see people who are solving problems and sometimes in very unique ways so that's why i don't want to shut the door and say that you know, you need to call a barefoot trimmer. A lot of times I think barefoot trimming, trimmers have a passion to keep the horse barefoot, but sometimes that passion is too extreme. Mm -hmm. And then you find the same with farriers. Some of them are just like, eh, push you on. It's easier. I don't have to think about it. And yes. they don't want heard, to do I've the heard other. certain farriers say, well, barefoot, it's a dead fad. Right. Well, that's not the professional you want to call to get the shoes off your horse. I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it's that simple. I mean, the, the homework you do with talking to people will probably go the furthest. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So back to a practical question. Okay. Let's talk about trimming schedules. Four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, whether they're shoot or not shoot. What do you think of all that? Five is my favorite, between four and five. Whether because, they're shooed or not? Um, well, because I'm not doing much shoeing, I okay. don't have a huge opinion <laughs> on that. But, but I will say that I, can, I call my trim the half halt trim. 
if it looks like it needs trimming, I waited too long. Okay. Because I mean, I want to keep the foot collected. I don't want to let it fall apart and then pull it back together. Okay. And, and so five weeks is, is, has been your, your favorite uh, schedule. A lot of times when I first get them out of shoes, I will often, it depends on if, if you have a really weak walled horse, say a flared, flat-footed, thin-walled, sensitive thoroughbred. That horse, I frequently will, will pull the shoe and barely do anything. And then I want to come back in two weeks and just lightly rasp and, and start making adjustments. And I might keep them on a two-week schedule a few times. It depends on the owner. It depends on their expectation, their budget, whatever. But seeing that horse in about two weeks is awesome. Then we go to four weeks for a little while, and then we usually land on four weeks for until the foot starts holding a little bit. And then we go to five or six weeks if the horse is really capable. But very, very light trims often really serve you well if you have a horse that has that really super thin wall, super flat feet. You just are slowly collecting them and helping them stay together and not fall apart. Hmm. Does that make more sense? It's oh, just yeah. like teaching a horse to learn to canter. You ask for one stride and then two strides, and you're just kind of saying, let's just keep it together and I'll give you a rest. I'll keep it together. You know, you just, you don't want it to go completely out of whack. So we've, we've, we've picked on the poor thoroughbreds, um, <laughs> poor thoroughbreds. So one of the other they seem I, I, to I, have a reputation. They do. They do. And and so and so do paint. Well, I was just going to get to the paint horses because I see a lot of uh, paint horses that seem to have very uh, we'll call them weak feet, and they tend to. I, I think of the foot that has the very contracted heels. Have oh. you seen that too, Paige? <laughs> well, it was funny because where I was in Virginia, everything I worked on was pretty much thoroughbred and warm blood. And I rarely saw anything that was a stock horse type, quarter horse, paint, Appaloosa. I rarely saw Arabs. And now I live out in Arizona and all I see is quarter horses, and <laughs> Arabs. And so it's, it's kind of uh, dependent on where you live. But yeah, they all have unique problems. And that's the information that Jenny and I are putting together, trying to help people understand what tissues are being affected in a foot that's really tall and, and contracted and gotten just kind of rolling in on itself versus one that has just like, is like a paper fan that's just been open all the way out. The contracted foot is like a, a paper fan that you've just folded up really, really mm, close. It's a great image. <laughs> yeah. And it, when you're talking about the back of the foot and your frog and your heels and um, both of them, the really contracted foot gets body issues from too much concussion because the back of the foot is not able to flex and dampen concussion that's going all the way up the joint. But then you have the flat-footed horse that whose heels are maybe too wide open and, and there's no vaulting to the, uh, the bottom of the foot. There's no cup to it. There's no, you know, concavity that they also take a pounding because it's already open all the way. There's no bounce to it. 
So what are you seeing? You must be seeing quite a difference going from Virginia, softer footing, four seasons, uh, not that extreme heat, not the really hard, much hard. I'm, I'm thinking Arizona is a very different kind of soil, different kind of footing. The humidity and the moisture levels that, and the breed types, that's just, I feel like I have moved to Mars. I mean, it is such a different world, but I love that. I love how I had 18 years of trimming where it was wet and a, a foot that was flared out. And now I'm dealing with the opposite. I feel like it's making me a better teacher. And I'm able to start explaining to people where you can ask for change, where you might just have what you've got, but it's not really doing any damage. I mean, I don't know, it's, it's exciting. So in terms of, we talked a little bit about nutrition. What about general management? So how we keep horses. So when you were out in Virginia, you would have seen a lot of the show barns where the horses are under very highly managed care, kept in stalls, turnout is in small paddocks, et cetera, et cetera. Now you're out west where horses, I'm sure that, yes, there are still the show barns, but there may be more land for horses to be. Fine, there's much less land. Much less land. Fewer horses are on big properties here. Okay. I haven't been here that long. I don't have that many horses that I do. But I bought, I have about five acres now, but the original acre and a half that I bought, I was allowed up to seven horse acre and a half. Oh People keep horses in small pens that are just say 16 by 16, 16 by 24. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's shocking how many horses are in much closer confinement. There might not ever be turnout, ever. They just live in these pens. And, you know, so it's all over the map. And then there's places that are, that are normal and have pastures. I have mine on about three quarters of an acre. So what do you see in the feet of a horse that is kept that confined versus the horses that are out and moving more. Do you see a difference? Yeah, the feet overgrow. I mean, you have to, you, they don't get anywhere. It's the same as the stalled horses in, in the Northeast. It's, it's no different that they're not taking care of their feet at all. And it's all about, you have to keep them on a regular schedule and stuff. Movement is key, whether it's East or West. Yes. It just seems to be, but that's, that goes for the horse's mind and behavior and health and, and, and everything. So what do you think about putting gravel in pastures to toughen the feet? So I think you have to be really careful on, that was a, one of the original things that you toughened up the feet and you conditioned the horses to this. And that quite frankly was just too much too fast for a lot of horses, but then there's Dr. Bowker at Michigan State, and he um, has done some studies showing that some of the pea gravel, you know, softer gravel, little that is supportive, but they kind of their feet vary in it a little bit. It's not sharp. That that can help with wear on the foot. It helps weight distribution at the back of the foot. It in, can increase some health. But again, I see people go all over the map with sometimes they'll force a horse to stand on that all the time. And it's just, you know, adding a little spot of that, say around your water trough or through gates 
or a little area where the horse might like to loaf is a great way to add some variety and it does help the feet, helps them dry out. There's But it's important to, it. to pick the right rock. It is important to pick the right rock, but it's not that hard. I mean, hmm. you just don't want to get really sharp granite. Yeah. I mean, some of it's been smoothed a little bit. There's lots of better resources than me because each, each region's going to have different mm. sources. Right. And I think you could probably even go like to a gravel yard and put your hands on it and kind of see what you think is going to be supportive and, and not too sharp. Because mm -hmm. it really does matter what going to your local quarry, what, yeah, what comes out of each quarry is going to be a little bit different. Yeah, once again, I'm not giving you a good answer. Sorry. No, you are. Because it's, it's, if you were giving us black and white answers, well, first of all, I wouldn't be talking to you. <laughs> because it's not black and white. Training is not black and white. The expression is, it's always a study of one. There are general principles that guide you. But at the end of the day, it's a study of one. Yes. And that's very much a matter of the, the feet. There are definitely, there are general principles, but I've heard farrier after farrier, trimmer after trimmer say, you know, for this horse, I started out doing, you know, what you're in quotes supposed to do. And the horse was a mess and I did the opposite and he's really comfortable and sound and, and it just works for this horse. Yeah. Well, you travel all over the world and you're exposed to horses in all different types of conditions. And when you see a horse who is happy enough to engage and, and be open to training and isn't in a lot of pain, they're doing stuff right. Like don't yes. insist that they take the shoes off. And, you know, it's like, don't change what's working. But if, if they have questions and they do feel like something should be better, like the movement isn't quite what they wanted, experiment. But I tell people, you're not making a lifelong commitment. I have quite a few people who are talking about pulling some shoes. And I don't want them to just say, oh, let's pull off all the shoes and get started. I like them being hesitant. I like them asking questions. I like them looking to their horse to go, do we really want to try this? Because it's, I want people to enjoy their horses and I want the horses to enjoy their life. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's when, when you have the, the winter shoes on with the studs and I mean, even if the horse is, you know, like Woody's not lame, but when I, when I lead my barefoot horse, Mm -hmm. I feel like we're both walking on a cloud. Mm -hmm. When I lead my horse with the winter shoes, I mean, it feels so harsh, you know, on the, um, yeah. uh, 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 on concrete or wherever, mm -hmm. you know, it's just such a different feeling. One seems to be like in slippers and the other one is like in golf shoes. It's it well, just, and that's where boot choices are such a wonderful thing. Like the equine fusion is a soft boot that has flexion on the bottom. And that's, that's often, I think that would be a really good winter boot to put a horse in. Jenny is the North American dealer for the equine fusion. She educates a lot. We're putting even more anatomy together to help people 
you know, figure out what fits their horses and stuff. So what I keep hearing you talk about is that you're feeling that you need to do something different. And that's when I encourage people to just try it. Just try. You can't guarantee you're not going to make a mistake. But that's, that's again, with anything, with training, with what do you feed your horse? What do you you know, how do you trailer your horse? Everything has, sometimes you have to be brave Mm -hmm. to get what you want. And I just, you seem like you're really embracing this. So just try. It doesn't mean it's going to be successful out of the gate. Does that make sense? It, it, It does. And I'll tell you this, for me, for Woody anyway, this is the last time. I'm trying again, but if it's not successful, I'm going to let it go. Well, and that's where I, I feel like the person is as important as the horse. Like we, we want to have joy with our horses and stuff. So we want to do the best that we can. We want to give them the best care. And, you know, I can just, you know, you just sound like that's what you want to try one more time, but you're going to take care of him no matter what. So guess what? Nothing you do is going to be a mistake. It'll all be okay because you're not going to just be married to the idea of taking his shoes off and if he's uncomfortable you're just going to keep going down that path Mm -hmm. you're going to take care of your horse and there there are so many more resources than there were the boots are there's so many more boot choices there are so many more trained professionals yes yes and they have more tools at their disposal. So they, they, they're they the gluons. I mean, the gluons, first time uh, that I heard about gluons and, and saw somebody trying to use them, oh, what a mess and what a disaster. And it didn't really work. And because they were, it was a new technology. Mm-hmm. And are there benefits to those shoes? We, we yes, have... there's huge benefits to those shoes. What are they? Sometimes you get so much more soul growth because you're protecting the bottom of the soul mm-hmm. and sometimes you put them on for a couple of times and you can get a little more soul you can get a, a little bit better hoof shape but but at the end of the day you can also break the pain cycle because boots are an absolutely phenomenal tool but some horses are hard to fit some horses get rubs on their heel bulbs and my philosophy is pain is pain i don't care if it's the bottom of the foot or if it's the heel bulb it's like you know you've got i don't want to see a horse living in boots if it's hurting them that being said there's tons of horses and people who use boots and do fabulous with them but it's like me buying a new pair of shoes i i buy what i think is going to fit my foot but really until you wear it you don't know it that's right but yeah, the gluons and casting on things. So how do those Often work? You get a horse. Hmm? How do they work? How the what? The gluons and the casting. How does that work? You just basically, it's like a horseshoe, but they have a flexibility to them that is is like having barefoot, and they're protecting the sole. And and if you're gluing and casting, a lot of times believe it or not, sometimes the feet flex too much and you need to have the horse the foot a little more stable. It's like having a sprained ankle that normally you'd want to be really flexible and stuff, but sometimes it's nice to have just a little bit of support. Right. And support isn't always locking down all the movement. It's just keeping it from being so extreme. 
Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So when you will in various ways. So when you have horses that have what's common out here in our wet climate, horses with thrush, horses with the white line disease, etc. What are some of the treatments of choice these days? Well, white line disease, and this has been one of the fun things about doing so much anatomy, is that most of the time I feel like, and again, I'm only doing my own little research and I have lots of, of uh, dissections under my belt and lots yes. of images, that white line disease usually comes about with a foot that is too big for the structures underneath. You've got a little bit of stretching going on in your lamina and that can cause changes and, and you end up, I've just finished an article half an hour before I got on this call for the horse magazine that's talking about cracks. And we didn't talk about white Lyme disease, but they kind of have a little bit of a spinoff of each other where you get changes to your lamina they start thickening and then it looks like, looks like, I can't verify it, but it looks like that starts pressing on the bone and you get a bit, little bit of bone loss. So your lamina change, your sulcorium changes, all that, and the body's filling in the gap. And that material just kind of builds up. And think about like if you've had pads on um, shoes and pads and you take the pads off, you know how you get that, that, soul is just all flaky and icky and stuff. Yes. I think between the wall and the lamina, you get a little bit of soul growth and it's easier to show you with images than it is to explain it. But that a lot of times just keeping the foot tighter and a better trim and understanding the anatomy underneath is going to help you keep mitigate white line disease. Sometimes you do want to open it up, treat it with clean tracks, but sometimes just a really good regular trim will go a long way towards fixing that. And then you were talking about thrush. Yes. Thrush is one of those that you can treat it with, you know, there's a variety of things, clean tracks again, you soak the foot in that, you get better at cleaning it, you get a better trim so that the, I think, a good trim ends up creating better circulation within the foot. So then all of those tissues, your cells turn over better, you get healthier tissue. I mean, that's just kind of what it, when you get healthier yourself, your hair often improves, your skin often improves, your nails yes. often improve. So I think it's that simple in that aspect. But if you've got thrush and you do have just an infection going on, trying some of the antimicrobial medications, and you can sometimes use desitin if it's a little bit sore to help keep out moisture. There's just a variety of, of things. Sometimes you use antifungal stuff like athlete's foot cream or jock itch cream. Those often help. What else? I don't know. I'm kind of losing track. Yes. Well, th- those are all good good treatments. And I, I'm not even going to ask the laminitis question because that's such a huge topic. We could be here all night. Yes, we would be all night and into the next week kind of thing. It would be Thanksgiving before we even began to feel as though we had done any justice to the subject. So we won't go down that 
road at all. But I think this has been a great beginning on a conversation around feet and very relevant to all the discussions we have about training. Because one of the things that I say on a, a very frequent basis is if you've gone through a training process with a horse and say you're having a behavioral problems and you go through a training process that you have confidence in and you know that generally speaking if you've if you do this work the horse is going to come around but it doesn't and there's still a lot of resistance and you're not seeing the kinds of responses and changes that you would normally expect then there's a physical problem there's something physical going on. And horses are very good, very good at hiding pain, at, at not showing, oh, it hurts there. You know, if, if it's an abscess, it's pretty obvious. They look like they've broken a leg. But otherwise, they, can, they are very good at hiding things. But whenever you have a persistent training problem, scratch below the surface and you will, in my experience, it's, I want to say you will always find a physical problem. And one of the places to the places to look are places that we've talked about today, nutrition, teeth, and absolutely feet, absolutely feet. I think the feet cause a lot of the training issues. And I think the lower level pain makes it more like it's a training issue. Yes. It's not obvious. My horse won't go forward. How do I make my horse go forward? You know, I don't want it's to- all horse. Yeah. They, they aren't even engaging. They don't even want to play with you with clicker yes. training. Yes. There's just, that's not normal behavior. And usually they respond better than that. Yes. Yeah. So- on that note, I think what we're going to do is thank you enormously, enormously for the time that you've spent with us and all of this good sharing. Well, we'll put the websites on the show notes because I think it's very, the quality of the image, they, your images, they speak so much. I, I found that they were really amazing. So people should go and look and you have... <laughs> All these feet that uh, you, um, all these feet that you dis, how do you say? Name? Dissected. Dissected. It's it's very precious. All this information. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Well, it's been fun to catch up. It's we. It's it's been way too long, so it's been fun to catch up. Well, reach back out and you know, give me a call if you have other questions that you want me to answer and just let me know how I can help. Let me help you figure out how to proceed forward. It's easier to, to answer your questions in specific cases than it is generalizing for like a, a talk like this. When you right, have right, right, open-ended right. questions, it's just, there's so many caveats to mm. how do you proceed. But this is, this, I think this gives people a good jumping off point. And you've provided them with a lot of resources. And that's the, that's the important part. So now it's up to people to do their own educating, you know, to really to go to your websites, to do the learning. And to, to you know, it's go to people for opinions and horses for answers. I love that expression. I've always loved that expression. But that really trust your gut 
and work with your horse to find the best way to keep him comfortable. I think that's the bottom line uh, in what you're describing here. And put together a good team. Find the professionals that you are comfortable working with, enjoy working with, respect their expertise, and make them part of your horse's team. Very important. So thank you so much. Lots of food for thought. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Before you go, just a couple of quick announcements. First, the revised edition of my book, The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, should be ready to ship sometime around the 10th of December. So hopefully I'll have it in time to ship for Christmas. You can go to my website, theclickercenter.com, to place your pre-order. While you're on the internet, I hope you'll also check out my new Facebook group and podcast, Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate crisis, and together we're learning how. We've got a lot of wonderful references on the Horses for Future Facebook page, and I've got new podcasts coming all the time for Horses for Future. So do please check that out, and you can also go to sequestercarbon.com, which is the home website for all of that material. And finally, do please remember that Michaela Hempen needs our help with her research project on cribbing horses. If you listen to our previous podcast, you'll know that Michaela is in the middle of a research project on cribbing. And the owner of the horse she's been working with has decided to sell this mare. And Michaela, she's so close to developing a protocol that can help cribbers, but she needs our help to purchase Blondie so the research can continue. If you want to learn more, go to GoFundMe.com and do a search on Blondie and Michaela Hempen. That will take you to the page she set up. And do please help, especially if you have a cribber or you know of someone who owns a cribber and is struggling with this behavior. We really need this project to be successful. And that can only happen if Michaela can continue to work with Blondie. So again, it's the GoFundMe.com and just do a search for Michaela Hempen on that page. And then go to SequesterCarbon.com for the Horses for Future project and go to TheClickerCenter.com to pre-order your copy of the step-by-step book in pictures. And for those of you who are in the U.S., I wish you a very happy Thanksgiving holiday. We've given you a long podcast this week because we know that many of you have long drives as you're going to friends and family. So safe travels and happy Thanksgiving. 